0: On the one hand, doesn't, I don't know, New Year's and these dates on a the calendar, they seem kind of arbitrary, right? What does it mean that today is the second day of 2011? Uh, what does it mean that the sun went, we went around the sun one more time? Um, but yet, at the same time, what's that? It does mean that, exactly. Um, at the same time, this going around the sun one more time, whatever we mark it by, dates on a calendar, it still makes us feel like... Something fresh might happen. Like maybe there's a new start to everything. I wonder why this is. Why do so many of us at the new year make resolutions or make changes in our lives, or at least long to make changes in our lives, that to make us want to live better or do something more in the world? I don't know the answer to that question for sure, but one of my suspicions is God's grace. God knows who he made. He made people who are both physical and temporal. We have stuff, we're made of stuff, and we live in time. And while we may have just invented the calendar system for ourselves, and we choose to tell time with dates and, and times on a clock, uh, we do this in ways that make sense With God chooses to meet with us in the accounting of our time. He chooses to meet with us in ways that we can understand. And I think this urge for a a fresh new year or a fresh start or making resolutions or doing things better all bubbles up from this inherent realization that the world is broken and that we're broken and there's always something better on the horizon. In fact, I think that God has put a a longing in our hearts for a better land, for a better way of life, if you will. And the Bible talks about this, and it it calls it, that's the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. So we look at these dates on the calendar like a reset button on a video game or a clean slate or a do-over, right? We look at the year 2011 maybe as the year of possibility. After all, you know, we're Americans, that's what we do, right? It's just, we, we can do it, a new year. The problem, of course, is that unfortunately, 8% of Americans, or only 8% of Americans actually keep their resolutions for a whole year. Why is this? Well, I know for me it's because I get lazy, but my suspicion is that uh, the reason that we, we don't often succeed in these long-term resolutions is because a lot of times we pick maybe superficial things to change. And we don't oftentimes get to the root issues of what's going on. Maybe we we'll want to lose weight. But we haven't really dealt with the fact that we're eating uh, to cope with stress, right? Or maybe we want to work out more often, but we just can't find the time because we work too much. But maybe the root issue is that we work too much because that's where we find our value. All right, so most of our attempts at superficial change are going to fail if we're not willing to make a radical resolution of changing our worldview into understanding that God is actually God, and we live in His world, the way He set it up. Now this evening we're going to look at a text in Matthew chapter 3 that calls us to a radical resolution. And before we dig into this text, we need, to, we need to kind of establish the story of what's been going on. I know that some of you are visiting for maybe the first time or you haven't been here in several weeks. And so what we've been doing over Advent and Christmas is looking at... Matthew's Gospel, first and second chapters. Uh, So we're just going to kind of do a quick recap of where we've been. So the first chapter of Matthew opens up with this genealogy, right? And we learn from the genealogy that Jesus is supposed to come from the line of Abraham and from the line of David. He is the one that the Jews are hoping will be the Messiah. He's the one that the Jews are hoping will fight back the Roman government and reestablish Israel as a nation. But what we also learn in this genealogy, from some of the unsavory names in it, is that Jesus isn't just here for the Jews. He's here for the entire world, for Gentiles and people who don't often live up to quote-unquote moral standards that, uh, that they might have held for the day. Well, then we read this strange story in chapter 1 of Jesus' birth. And unlike what you would expect for maybe the arrival of a king or, or the birth of the Messiah... Jesus isn't born with all this fanfare. In fact, he's born to a, uh, a virgin, unwed teenage mother, who happens to conceive by the Holy Spirit. And then her fiancé gets visited by an angel in a dream, not even face to face. And this angel tells him, go ahead and marry Mary. And you're going to name him Yeshua, which means God saves. And he's going to be known as Emmanuel, which means the with us God. And somehow we're getting a hint in this Emmanuel language that this Jesus is going to be more than just a human Messiah, that he is somehow mysteriously going to embody the presence of the living God. Blowing my mind here. Now last week we explored how God's presence on earth, this Emmanuel, this with us God, can either be a really, really good thing for those who trust him or could be a really terrifying thing for those who don't trust Him. The third option is not really an option. That we're just neutral observers. Because when God is in our presence, when the with us God comes, you have to kind of pick a side: am I going to follow Him or not? Now, right after this Emmanuel language, after uh, we, we learn that Jesus is the with us God, we see this really interesting story. We have the story about King Herod, who is king of Israel, and all the religious scholars who should know all their Bible front and back, and then you have these three visitors from the east, from Babylon of all places, pagans, they're not worshiping Yahweh at all. They come and inquire about where this Jesus, this Emmanuel, is going to be born, and Herod and the scholars know exactly where he's supposed to be born, but they reject Jesus. And the weird thing is is that these magi from the east come and they bow down and they worship him. Now, I have a question for you. What would you say is the single most important memory in Israel's history? What in Israel's history is the most vital event for their national and religious identity? One word. Exodus. Exodus. Very good. Exodus. The Exodus is the, is the story that that defines It is the story. Israel's story. Now, where did they escape from in the Exodus? What country? Egypt. Egypt. Very good. The arch nemesis, if you will, of ancient Israel is Egypt. So in Matthew chapter 2, Israel's Messiah and Savior is born in Israel... But Israel rejects him, and where does this Messiah, the Savior of Israel, have to flee? Egypt! This whole story that is setting up here in Matthew's Gospel is just dripping with irony. So now years have passed, and apparently Jesus has grown up, and we get our text for the evening. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. I want to invite you to stand as we read the Gospel of Matthew. Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. And they were confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is at hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Lord, we thank you for your word, even a hard word like this. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our minds, open our hearts to what you're trying to say to us this evening. We pray that we would leave here changed. Not, not merely more informed. Amen. You may be seated. So we learned this: this guy, John the, the John the Baptist, was preaching. And anyone notice where he was preaching? In the wilderness, he was preaching in the wilderness just happens to be that the wilderness is the main setting for the first exodus. It's where they received the law. It's where they were when they uh, got rescued. But in this story, we see that John's preaching leads people to a new kind of exodus. That John isn't talking about uh, an exodus from Rome or an exodus from political enemies per se, but he's talking about an exodus from sin and evil. And John is preaching or proclaiming that people should repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's come near. It's drawing close. God's kingdom isn't so much a place like this is... um, 2401 H Street, or it's not, is it? That's my house. This is uh, <laughs> 20, Now you know where I live. 2100 Broadway, that's where we are here. But the, the, the kingdom has often been described as the effective range of God's will. It's where what God wants done is done. It's, the effective range of God's will is pretty big. I, I'd say it's everywhere. John is saying, listen, you've been living your lives as if you were in the kingdom of Rome, or in the kingdom of Herod or in a kingdom of your own making. But the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn around from the way you've been living and live into the reality that God is actually king, that His law is actually the law. The reality that His rule for life is ultimately the only one that really matters. Now, speaking of preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, This happens to be our core verse as a church. Anyone else say stuff like that? Besides me? Jesus. Jesus. Isn't that the right answer? It's always the right answer. Except for that time. Um, Jesus is saying the same kind of thing. John is preparing the way for Jesus. And you'll see as we work through, I'm not going to point it out every time, but the stuff that John is preaching, axes laid at the roots of trees and winnowing forks and all this kind of stuff, Jesus says the same stuff all throughout Matthew, all throughout his teaching. So John and Jesus are on the same page. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John rarely tell the same story the same way. It's why we get four different perspectives. But in one thing, at least, they are all saying the same thing. That John the Baptist is fulfilling this scripture in Isaiah 40, the same one Rosemary read minutes earlier. That John the Baptist is in some way the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now... Did you hear that right? I want you to pay attention to who John is preparing the way for. Collins, you can't answer. He's a voice in the wilderness making ready the way of the... The way of the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Old Testament. Is that preparing the way of the Messiah? It's preparing the way for Yahweh. For God Himself. And you think that's cool. Check this out. In keep, when we keep on reading, we learn about John's clothing. Ever wondered why that is? Why Matthew wastes space telling us what John is wearing or eating? I mean, the Gospels are about Jesus, right? Do you know what Jesus ate besides communion? Do you know what Jesus looks like? Do you know what Jesus was wearing? How about Abraham? Or Moses? or Peter, or Paul. We're not told what any of these people are wearing or eating for their their diet or where they're living necessarily. Why do you think the emphasis on telling us what John the Baptist is wearing? What if Matthew is telling us what John the Baptist is wearing? Because what John the Baptist is wearing tells us something about who Jesus is. In 2 Kings 1.8, we learn that the prophet Elijah... It's a hairy man who wore a leather belt around, a leather girdle around his waist. He lived out in the wilderness and ate weird things. Now check this out. The prophet Malachi says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the guess who? Yahweh, the Lord. Not talking about just the human Messiah. What John the Baptist is on about, what Matthew is trying to show us here, is that John the Baptist is fulfilling Isaiah 43, which is talking about the coming of the living God. That he is dressed just like Elijah. And and we learn in the prophets that one like Elijah is supposed to come before God himself comes, not just the human Messiah. This is a hugely Christocentric statement. Why did I have to say that? It's about Jesus being God. It's showing his divinity. Okay, I've got goosebumps. I don't know about you guys. This is pretty cool. John is preparing people for the coming of God himself. And how is John preparing people? By calling them to a radical... I don't want to say New Year's resolution, but a radical a radical resolution. He's calling them to repentance and baptism. Now... We're a church here, and maybe you're visiting for the first time and you haven't been around church that much, but I bet you kind of know that churches do this weird thing called baptize people. Dunk them in water, sprinkle them. There's all kinds of different traditions. And so when it says that there's a guy named John the Baptist and he's baptizing people in the river, it kind of sounds normal, right? Like that's what people do in Bibles, right? Well, actually in the first century, Jewish people didn't get baptized like that. Very conservative Jewish people sometimes would do this thing called ritual washing. Oh, I did, this is not planned. I just saw this bowl here. Uh, so they would have maybe like a vessel in their house or uh, a small bath, they would call it. And um, before you would eat or pray or uh, if you had committed a specific sin, you could do this little ritual washing. It's not really to wash any dirt off. It's, just to, it's symbolic of washing yourself clean from a sin okay that's what some of the real conservative Jewish folks would do but the word baptism to dip or dunk or submerge was something only non-Jewish people did as an act of initiation so a gentile person and that's anyone who's not Jewish, uh, maybe it's a, a, someone who's in a polytheistic religion or worshiping idols, all kinds of other things. They may uh, have come to learn about Judaism and the one true God, Yahweh, and they want to convert to Judaism. And so what would happen is um, they would be baptized, completely dunked under. The sim- symbolism is, is, is dying to an old way of life. Because what happens if you stay under too long, right? You die. Uh, dying to a new way of life, but then they're nice and they pull you up before that happens. And you are raised to walk, you break the waters... Uh, as a new individual, as a new identity. And so a Gentile person would be baptized and they would leave all their old life behind, all the idols and things, and come out and be a worshiper of Yahweh, the living God, right? It was more than washing away a single sin, like a lie or cheating or lusting or something like that. It was a symbolic death to a whole way of life. and An image of living into a new way of life. So, John the Baptist is calling Jewish people to this same activity. He's saying that simply being a certain religion or a national heritage is not enough to save you. And as a church, we need to hear that. That simply being a certain religion or living in a Christian nation is not going to save us alone. We need a new way of life. And that's what John the Baptist is on about. He's calling people to repent. And they were coming, and they were confessing their sins at their baptism. And again, you know, we're church, right? And you, Maybe you're a visitor, and you're saying, oh, this is a church, and confession is what churches do, right? Like Catholic Church, they have the confession. And in Protestant circles, sometimes we have a spiritual friend, and we have accountability partners, whatever. We confess our sins, or we journal about it. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. But uh, confession is kind of a, a churchy term. And so we read this, people are confessing their sins while they're getting baptized, and it sounds kind of normal, Right? But it wasn't necessarily all that normal. In fact, oftentimes in the Jewish world in the first century, and a little bit before, people would often come to God and try and justify themselves. you ever wonder, like, like in Job or sometimes in the Psalms, you've got people um, and they come to God and they say, Hey, God, will you defeat my enemies? Because I'm so righteous! And, you know, would you do this for me? Because I've been living upright. And when I read that, I kind of bristle. I'm like, I don't know if I could say that. I'm a pretty good guy, but standing before God and trying to justify who I am or or that I've been good enough. This is completely different. You've got people coming to John the Baptist, this weirdo in the wilderness, getting baptized, which is extremely humiliating for a Jew, and then confessing their sins in public. We see here the example of humility is the one that's exalted. Not an example of trying to justify our behavior. So you've got crowds of people coming out to the wilderness to John, confessing their sin, getting baptized just like Gentiles. Extremely humiliating. And then the religious elite show up. Pharisees and Sadducees. Sadducees were these guys who were trained clergy, they ran the temple system. They were educated, and they kind of had a political role as well by the time the first century came around. So maybe the average person sitting in the pew at, at the temple or whatever would um, would look at these Sadducees and say, you know, they're kind of, kind of compromised. Like, they know a lot about religion, um, but they're kind of in bed with the politicians too because the politicians, the Roman politicians, are the ones who kind of appoint them. And so they have to walk this weird line of trying to be just holy enough but also pleasing the politicians and so the common folks might say oh they're a little bit compromised okay then the pharisees were a a, a movement of the laity so they weren't actually priests in the temple but they were like um uh you know they thought that the sadducees had sold out to the man if you will so these are these are the guys that we might call fundamentalists today okay they know their bible front and back and they feel like if we just keep the rules well enough the kingdom will come, that God will come if we just, if we just get it right. So sometimes they're at odds with the, with the Sadducees and the way that they do business, okay? Both of these groups are at odds with John the Baptist and with Jesus. The reason is because John the Baptist and Jesus had problems breaking through to them because of their pride and because they relied on their national heritage more than their actual devotion to Christ and to God. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came out to see what John was doing, what was going on. Maybe they were there just to check out the scene. The scripture actually says they were there to get baptized. And so maybe they were getting baptized just because everyone else was doing it or fire insurance or whatever. But John kind of senses their insincerity. And so he calls them out. He calls them a brood of vipers. Just, I don't know if they're better names to call people. But uh, in those days, it was extremely insulting and you'll see why. Um, Some historians thought that In certain vipers, that the the, the babies would actually eat through the mom's belly before they were born, and some people had witnessed this, and so it became this kind of slang byword to insult people really badly. Uh, Basically, you're called you're a mother killer. That's pretty bad, even in our day. I don't know if we would use that language, but uh, that's that's what it's getting at: is that you are you mother killers. John is hardcore. Uh, It's figuratively speaking, though, uh, they were also killing their mother, Israel, by leading the people astray. John basically tells them, hey, just because you're Israelites doesn't mean you're ready for God's arrival. Don't think because you have Abraham in your background, you'll be okay. God can turn rocks into children of Abraham. What God wants is fruit that shows that you've actually repented. Some proof that you've actually changed your ways. John is saying that Jesus, he's saying the same thing that Jesus is going to say in just a few chapters. That faith should lead to obedience. On the day Jesus returns, we can't just say, hey Jesus, remember I called you Lord? Or, hey Jesus, remember I showed up at church? Or, hey Jesus, remember how I gave every week at church? Jesus might say, I never knew you. So what do we do? What do we do to John's call to repent, to live a different way? In Luke's gospel, it's interesting. Some people in the story actually ask him what to do. Give us details. Just give me a list, God. It'd be easier in some ways, wouldn't it, if we just had a list of rules to keep. Just tell me what to do. But this message from John is so much deeper than just giving us a list of do's and don'ts. The message demands that each one of us kind of examine our hearts. We've got to ask Jesus to reveal the areas we need to repent of. There's no formula. And I know that that's really frustrating sometimes. Sometimes you just want, hey, Chris, give me a list of stuff to do. I I wish I had that list. But the problem is when I start suggesting ideas of what repentance looks like, it might limit what's really going on in your heart. And so this is the part where we have to engage the message on a personal level. And if you're like me, I'm thinking, (laughs) as I'm thinking through this this week, I know exactly the areas of my life that could use some work. And I suspect if you think about it for a couple minutes, you know the areas of your life that could use some tweaking as well. Maybe more than tweaking. Maybe a complete turnaround. Turnaround. This is a hard passage to preach. John is convicting. He's calling the religious people mother killers. That's me. He, he's calling those of, of you who are maybe uh, the informed laity who lead Bible studies or uh, are leaders in the church. He's calling us to check ourselves. To not just rely on the fact that we do lots of good stuff in the community or do lots of good stuff in our church. But are we actually following and trusting Jesus? And as convicting and as hard as John's message is, message is, the central part of John's message is not what we're doing wrong. It's not what we should be doing, but what has been done already. Central focus is always, always, always on Jesus. You see, the law can only lead us to what we ought to do. It cannot give us the power to actually do it. And John preaches that one is coming who is even greater than he is. John baptizes with water, but Jesus is going to come and do what only God can do. Actually give us the Spirit. It's only through baptism in Jesus that we receive the Spirit. and It's only through the Spirit that we're actually able to live the life that we're called to. So we can, we can, every new year, we can have these resolutions and say, I want to live a better life, I want to do these things, I feel convicted about this or that. But if we don't have the spirit of the living God, if we've not given ourselves to Jesus, we will not be able to do it. And that's the gospel, that we cannot do it, but one has done it for us. You know, in contemporary American churches, there's kind of this leaning towards focusing on God's love and Jesus' acceptance of everyone. And those messages are good and sound. And if you're here nine times out of ten, that's what I'm talking about. But God's love is in perfect harmony with His wrath. Emmanuel, the with us God, is going to judge wickedness. Whether or not I like to say that from a peer or not, it doesn't matter what I like to say. That's what Scripture says. In our churches that preach God's love, and we we live in a culture that denies the existence of sin and evil, John's is an important voice calling us to radical resolution. And that radical resolution is to confess, to admit that our affiliation with the church is not going to save us alone that no amount of money we give is going to save us that the amount of time we spend reading our Bibles won't save us they're all good things in fact Dale Bruner writes there is no immoral road to salvation like good luck saying oh I don't have to do those things so I might as well just party down it's just the fact that the door to salvation is not our morality the road to salvation is Jesus he's the door and one enters the door by confessing sincerely that we need His grace to be saved. After all, we can't really rely on Jesus' grace if we don't think we need it. I'm going to just give us an opportunity to respond as a church. Because I know this is heavy stuff. And So what I did is I just copied the, um, uh, the very famous... Uh, prayer of confession that sometimes we use for communion. I thought we could just recite it together. Just follow me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name. Amen.